This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. Gotkin, and in this episode, they say founding a startup is like raising a child. After blowing more than $100,000 on fertility treatment, Claire Tompkins did both, alongside setting up a fertility financing fintech to help others do the same. If you start a company, you understand in the early days, it's a very manual process, not much different from having a baby. Um, and then you sort of get into the toddler years where, you know, you're still a little bit on suicide patrol. And there's, again, a lot of caretaking, but it's starting to wobble or walk on its own feet and then you kind of hopefully get into this later stage where there's more independence. Claire Tompkins, co-founder and CEO of Future Family, thanks so much for joining me on the F Tech podcast. Elliot, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so you're in what looks like sunny San Francisco. Um, I mean, how are things going there? I mean, are you and your family and employees all, all well and kind of managing uh, despite the ongoing COVID crisis? Yes. I mean, we're like most startups where we've now become fully virtual, although it is still San Francisco is still our HQ. And, you know, it was an interesting year, to say the least, for uh, fertility and most of elective health care, because there were certainly some COVID impacts. Um, we saw in Q2 of 2020 that most of elective health care shut down for a period of months. Um, but since then, things have obviously picked back up. And I would say that there have been a number of um, benefits or sort of silver linings for the industry from COVID. Right. Well, I want to come to those in, in, in a second because I, I described you as a, a fertility financing fintech, but there's obviously more to more to it than just lending money to pay for IVF or, or egg freezing. So perhaps you can, to begin with, just give us an idea of, of how the whole uh, premise of Future Family works. Yeah. So I, I'm a absolutely, and as you foreshadowed, um, this, there's a personal angle here as well, since um, after being in uh, the fintech space, but with applications in clean energy, I had been a solar city exec during kind of those hyper growth years, um, got into fertility after a personal experience of starting my own family with IVF and discovering just how eye poppingly expensive it could be and how limited the solutions really were. And, you know, I also would say I really am a big believer in um, the verticalization and the power of fintech to solve deeply vertical um, problems. I, I think we've seen a huge amount of innovation on a horizontal scale in the early days of um, platform lenders, for example, like, you know, huge platform lenders that we all know and love, you know, lending clubs and prospers and SoFi's of the world. Um, but what we're trying to do is bring that innovation and verticalize it um, with a mission to help people start their families. So that means that we're providing a complete financial product with wraparound services for folks starting families using fertility treatments. And we can obviously talk more about what that means. Yeah, so it's uh, IVF and egg freezing right now that you help provide financing for and kind of like chopping up the payments so it's not so eye-poppingly expensive, as you said? Yeah, exactly. But so the, the vision was 
you know, not to just come at it from like a financing angle, but to look at it as, okay, we have a big access gap here. So it's really affordability, but it's more than that, right? If you understand the vertical, you know that, okay, fertility is a super complex and, and fairly emotional journey for a lot of consumers to navigate. So we came at it from the angle of like, let's develop a financial product where the, the product itself addresses the consumer issue, the pain point. So we now offer these monthly plans for fertility treatment, and they come with wraparound services. And those wraparound services in our case are actually powered by our digital health platform. So we offer this financial solution packaged with fertility coaching, which means that you get digital support from a registered nurse clinically trained in fertility who's guiding you through this journey. They're really serving almost like a concierge for you going through. And we've built in the additional you know, platform services that you might expect for a fintech company like payment management services. So for those who've been through fertility treatment, you might discover you have actually seven to 10 bills to pay, not one. So all of these support services are are what we refer to as our wraparound services. And they're all included in our monthly plans, which you know, for IVF start at something like $350 to $400 a month. And for egg freezing can be as low as $200 to $250. So a really um, kind of mainstream consumer mass market approach to how do we create access around fertility. So it's kind of, I guess you've got kind of one leg in the health tech space, one leg in the fintech space. Uh, in, in terms of uh, other opportunities in the space? I mean, you would look to things like uh, surrogacy and, and other things like that? I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, obviously other area, you know, expansions or um, adjacencies. Uh, we certainly already help uh, couples with surrogacy by covering their IVF services. Um, it's obviously an, an even larger, you know, big ticket item. So certainly there's, you know, always continue to be more services in just the IVF space. I think what we see is you know, we're forming these long-term five-year relationships with our our clients. Um, typically, our, our plans are a five-year plan. So you're replacing this $25,000 out-of-pocket expense with something that you're paying, you know, $350, $400 a month for a number of months. And what we're seeing is the opportunity is really forming a relationship with a consumer to help them build their family. So, you know, even as an early fintech, we have now customers who've come back to have second children with us. And I think that that's, you know, beautiful. It's very much the vision um, that will be there at the beginning, and then we'll help you expand your family as you're ready. And what kind of interest rates are people having to pay? Are they in line with what they get from an alternative lender or a bank? Lower. I mean, the goal, the goal here, right? So this is the power, again, of like the verticalization. We know our consumer and our demo better than anyone else. If you're a, a horizontal player, you're going across the whole market and you're, um, you're touching possibly every demo. In our case, we understand the profile so well. We are um, working with clients who are really at this phase of their life. A lot of them are... Um, you know, in family relationships. So if you think of our profile, um, because we understand that consumer, we also know how to price these um, financial products. And that makes us extremely competitive um, in the market. And that would be the goal, right? If you're going to build a vertical solution, you better be the best offering in that vertical. So our interest rates are lower than you would get on um, generic platforms. um, And they, over time, of course, will, will push even lower. And that's another thing is that vertical businesses like this are not spread-based businesses, right? I mean, that's, we think of, you know, 
financing as often being a spread-based business, we're actually providing this value-added services. So we've got consumer revenue, we've got revenue through the channel. Um, so that allows us then to be very competitive on interest rate for the consumer. And in terms of the technology uh, that's there, uh, I know a lot of fintechs, for example, they have technology that may pre-approve people for loans based on you know alternative data that they can see that these people are more likely to pay back or something. What What is your you know, fintech USP, if you like, when it comes to, you know, approving people to use Future Family and also ensuring that they get the best uh, deals or rates uh, that are appropriate to them? Yeah, I mean, like other lenders, right, like now that we're in this space, you know, that we have the data to support our thesis that shows how these loans perform and, and we understand the underwriting deeply. And so some of that is absolutely proprietary to FF. But then I would say even beyond that, we're building a brand relationship with a consumer, which is quite different from, again, what you would see in a generic scenario or even possibly like a bank, where this is a personal relationship with the FF brand. Um, and that, I think, even shows up if you um, dig and kind of look at the company or the sort of reviews and relationships we have with our consumers, like they're having a personalized experience going through fertility and having a fertility coach who reaches out to them, provides emotional support, helps guide them along the way. It's a very lonely and isolating experience. And just those touch points, the way that <clears throat> the team um, approaches this, actually, it's, um, I don't know if this will be the case as we scale the company further, but today about 40% of our staff have been through IVF. It's a something where we approach the problem with deep empathy. And it really shows up in how consumers relate to the brand. Um, and so, you know, we, we part of the other thesis has been this brand affinity will also help drive performance for the long term. And when it comes to a number of fintechs, they may detect things such as, you know, I think micro lenders in emerging markets often found that women were more likely to pay back loans, for example. Uh, and obviously, there are lots of different data points. I think uh, I remember speaking with the uh, founder of Teller, I think it was talking about, for example, if people phone their mothers more often or something, they're more likely to pay back a loan. Is there anything that you've kind of discovered in the data with your clients that kind of makes them more likely to pay back? Or, or are people going through IVF by definition more likely to repay loans and therefore the risk of default or, or loans going sour is that much reduced? Yeah, yeah. So on the performance side, for sure. So if you think about this, um, the, the individuals, the couples who are starting families, they're in what we might refer to as a responsible phase of life. They care deeply about protecting their credit score. They are also um, typically in a phase of life where they're fully employed. They're providing for their family, which they're starting with us. So yes, I mean, this is a, um, this is a, a, a demo that we understand deeply and that, um, you know, those those attributes correlate with um, pay back their loan and performing incredibly well. Um, so that's important. And then I would just say the other thing is obviously today as a, plat as a platform, we ourselves are um, 680 and above, which is, you know, if you look at the stats, about 60 to 70% of consumers in the US. So it's certainly not a TAM reducer, but it does mean that we're, we're generating a prime to super prime portfolio. And we are constantly innovating on access. It's the mission of the company to provide access to everyone who wants to start a family. And so the way that we're doing that today, it's been part of our product innovation, is we have extended our um, options to allow sponsors on the platform. So now it is the case that a family member or a friend can sponsor your fertility plan. And so we have examples of um, get siblings. Your grandparents to chip in as well. Yeah, grandparents, we, we launched this with, I think, Inc. Bat, you know, a few months ago of like, 
the grandparent loan. It's like grandparents-to-be who want to sponsor fertility treatments, which lines up nicely with demographic trends where baby boomers kind of have disproportionately have a lot of the wealth versus uh, the, you know, uh, Gen Xers. So absolutely, we see that all the time. We see, um, you know, family members coming to the rescue, and it's a way that we can generate access without, of course, compromising the solution from uh, uh, the finan- financing perspective. Yeah, you can just imagine certain grandparents probably uh, actively encouraging their their children to kind of, you know, spend the money to do it because they want grandchildren. You mentioned COVID uh, just before. I guess there there were various theories about what it was going to do, all of these lockdowns. Were people going to, being under lockdown with not much to do, going to end up, uh, you know, having or wanting uh, more children? Or perhaps were they going to split and be less likely to have more children? What was the kind of impact on your business? Because I know, I guess there are two impacts, really. There's the kind of digital side where people are doing more things digitally and perhaps the people that finance you or give you provide you with the capital to provide your um, finance may have been tightening their belt or been a bit more worried at the beginning of covid and at the same time you've got your consumer end where you know what's the future going to hold do i want to bring children into a world where there's plagues going around so how did that affect the business yeah so i mean Lots of interesting things happened during COVID, so let's talk about that. So one um, one thing that I think when you look at it now kind of stands to reason, but of course no one at the time predicted was you saw a huge surge in egg freezing. And I, I think the reason I always say jokingly it stands to reason is you had a, a, had a lot of uh, uh, progressive women at home in sweatpants with no need to go to the office and no ability to date online. And so what it generated was a massive rush on the egg freezing market. And our partners um, who offer egg freezing had never been busier. Um, NYU reported a 40% CAGR in 2020 on egg freezing alone. Um, it was quite the boom um, in that particular market. Um, on the sort of IVF starting a family side during COVID, it's been a more of a mixed bag, right? I mean, a lot of consumer sentiment shifted to waiting to start a family um, in terms of you know going through fertility treatments in the height of COVID. There was also some CDC guidance that did say that mothers who are pregnant um, could be at, at higher risk, right? Because you you know your ability to get treated when you have COVID is somewhat compromised when you're pregnant. Like you're not going to be able to take drugs. You, you never are. So I think you saw um, this big spike in egg freezing, this kind of little bit softening in IVF demand. You saw some um, closures th- throughout the industry in the early phase of COVID. But what's important here is really thinking about you know how COVID has impacted the industry for the long term. It's really generated. Um, a lot of pent-up demand that we anticipate seeing in H2 of 2021 and beyond. Um, Those individuals who waited in 2020 did not stop wanting to have a family. They just shifted their timing. So now the industry is facing what we might think of as a backlog. And then it had some interesting impacts on just the way the industry operated. Um, It accelerated the adoption of telehealth in a way that is, has been true across most of healthcare, but fertility clinics that we worked with were not in the business of doing virtual consults or um, offering telehealth services, and now most clinics do. And that's just fabulous news for the consumer, right? Because telehealth is a, you know, a huge friction reducer when it's about getting that first consult, getting answers, getting um, treatment. So it's been that's been an exciting trend and also one that ties nicely into the Future Family platform where we are offering and always have offered virtual fertility coaching as a support service for consumers. 
And many startups, of course, are born from personal experiences. And I know you touched on this briefly just before, but uh, often people found startups because they encountered particular problems and decided they were going to solve them. So Zappos, I think, came about because the founder couldn't find the right size or style of shoe. And the founder of Ring, the video doorbells, couldn't hear his doorbell when tinkering in his garage. Um, I think your story is obviously just about as personal as it can get. Um, perhaps you can share, share it with us so to get a, a better sense of, of how you came to to found this company. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, and I think if I've learned anything from doing a startup, it's that um, you better carry around some core passion around the problem you're solving because you, it's, you're in it for the long haul and there are a lot of uh, uh, trials and tribulations along the way. So the that's right. The original um, inspiration was that I myself went through fertility treatments in my early 30s. Um, rounds of IVF actually. So my oldest daughter is actually turning six this coming Friday happy in birthday. a couple of days. Yes, exactly. Happy birthday, Natalie. She was born on the sixth or conceived on the sixth cycle, sixth round of IVF. Sixth. So there were five unsuc- unsuccessful rounds and then the sixth worked. That's right. Five unsuccessful rounds of IVF, sixth round, con- she was conceived. And, you know, I, I have now met, you know, many women and couples who have been through even longer journeys um, and, and longer cycles. So at the time, you know, I remember thinking that that was, you know, quite intense. And I, it, there's a, a emotional spectrum that I think many women experience when they go through this, where, especially your first time, you're not sure if it's going to work. And so you experience a lot of anxiety and sense of loss, really, that you might not be able to conceive or become a mother. And so just navigating that sort of emotional roller coaster over that two year period, um, you know, left a really deep impression. Um, I was, of course, lucky on the sixth cycle to conceive um, and then later went on to have twins via IVF. So all three of my kids um, conceived this way. But the, you know, going through this personally, one, I realized how isolating it was um, you know, even now there's more coverage in the media and more open discussion. And I'm really in love all the women who are out there sharing their stories, sort of, um, amazing, uh, brave women on social and some of the influencers who are just talking about this topic. But at the time there was a lot less, um, engagement. And then you just also realized that this industry was really serving like the 2% of Americans who had ready cash to go through fertility treatments given the price point. I mean, it starts around 25000 per cycle. And of course, you know, after multiple rounds, it gets more and more expensive. So um, that, that was the so inspiration. you spent more than $125,000 on unsuccessful IVF until the $150,000 took hold. Yeah, something in that ballpark, right, of, of uh, how much it could cost you to conceive a child. And so at, at FF, you know, we're, we're hopefully removing a lot of that barrier. I would say that we're in the beginning of some of the innovation that we're planning for this industry where we really want to get to a point where we're able to offer financial solutions that drive the outcome that everybody's looking for. And today we do that in the sense that if you were to need a second cycle of IVF, you could get a second plan with us. And those plans are all affordably packaged into monthly payments, um, you know, designed for the consumer. And as I mentioned, we've had a lot of amazing stories where family members will sponsor or contribute to a plan on behalf of um, one of their family members who's going through IVF. So the, the goal was to really remove that financial stress, but just create broader access. And I mean, Elliot, you know this better than probably anyone else, given your, um, 
you know, your sort of seat in the industry and talking to all the, the fintech founders. But today, fintech is eating pretty much everything, consumer goods, durables, um, retail. So whether you're looking at, you know, a firm and what they've done, not just in the retail market, but for companies like Peloton, or you're looking at um, what's happened in, um, you know, a, a more elective services like Orthodonture with Clear Choice and Brightsmile and others, all of these have been brought into the consumer services paradigm where consumers are, are buying and, and paying for them on a monthly basis. They're not OPEX or, uh, or CAPEX, rather they're OPEX. And so I think that we just see the same opportunity in the fertility space. And I guess there's also potentially an opportunity, uh, you know, I don't know, for insurance products, for example, if, uh, if fertility treatments don't work, um, or also for, you know, kind of fertility bonds, maybe to, uh, you know, put, uh, put money aside to, to, I'm sure you're thinking of all of these ideas already. So I'm, I'm uh, just, yeah, I, I love all of those ideas. And I think that's right. There's a, a lot of deep innovation here because the goal is to create financial products that help, um, you know, couples start their family and expand their family. And, you know, there's no greater pain point today than access to fertility treatments themselves, but there's certainly additional innovation. Um, you know, you're just, you're, we're really literally at the inception point. And then there's all of the years ahead of kind of building your family. So it excites us to bring more financial products to the market to help, um, help women and couples with families. And to give us a sense of the scale uh, of, I guess, both the challenge, but also, most importantly, for you and for your investors, uh, of the opportunity, because obviously you talked about, you know, a huge surge in uh, women under lockdown, uh, unable to go online dating, not going to the office, sitting around in sweatpants, freezing their eggs for, for the future. Uh, now, nowadays, many more people are, you know, holding off on having children earlier, having children later and later. So I guess this is a, in the same way that kind of, you know, like cruise liners know that their market is only going to get bigger. You see something, something similar with people inevitably doing more and more IVF and fertility treatments. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not going to surprise you that my view of the market is um, one where I, I think this market, I think it's not, it's still not well understood. And I think that this market will eventually impact, impact and cover um, one in one in five couples, one in five Americans. And, and I say that because you just have to look at the numbers and the data. Um, so today in the U.S., 2% or one in 50 kids are IVF. So you go to a party and you, there's 100 people, hopefully you know two of them have IVF kids. It's one in 50. But in countries where you have better access and they started uh, the conversation in the media and uh, socially sooner, it can now, it's now up to one in 10. No difference in demographics between the US and some of these European countries, but there's you know better access and um, more social support. And so um, countries are, are already reaching one in 10. But if you really look at the underlying data, you see that 50% of the population is having their kids later in life and that fertility rates have fallen in most developed countries. So 50% of us are choosing to have our kids in the 30s and 40s. And that is just now, just now coming into kind of the mainstream. And so of those, um, you know, more than half of the population, those who are having their first child in their 30s may be able to successfully get pregnant, which is great, but may struggle to have a second or third child. So this is a um, set of services and solutions that will deeply impact the population. And our, our forecast is that it'll be 20% of um, 
not just Americans, but global citizens who need some sort of fertility support to start their family, um, given the demographic shift. And not to go too handmade tale on you, but, but this is really purely like an age thing that people are waiting later and therefore they are less fertile and therefore they need more assistance. There's no other kind of extraneous uh, uh, circumstances that are reducing fertility among, uh, among women nowadays. Yeah, so, it, so there, the biggest trend that has shifted this market, which can't really be overstated, is this trend that, you know, in all of human history, um, you know, 2016 was the, was the first time ever that we recorded more women giving birth in their 30s and their 20s. So, I mean, that's just a huge departure for the human species. The, um, but there, there are, of course, other factors here. So even without the demographic trends, it's always been the case that there's been underlying infertility in the population that just hasn't been well addressed. And that, you know, biological infertility, that can impact as much as one in eight couples. And then you also have um, the rising trend, which is you know fabulous trend of so many more same-sex families starting um, having kids and, and expanding their building their own families, and we know that that's a very large percentage of our our population, which is fantastic. And so, providing support services to um, LGBTQ families is is a growing market. And then you, of course, have um, just people who are doing you know second families. You have all sorts of interesting innovation around consumers who might want to really focus on having genetically healthy children because it has, you know, if you know families who've ever been impacted by some of the genetic um, diseases out there, it can be quite heartbreaking. And IVF is a solution for dealing with that now with genetic testing. So there are quite a few trends that converge to make this solution set really important. But let's not exactly, um, let's not uh, forget the most important trend of all, which is the demographic shift. Right, and I guess there's also the opportunity, the, the possibility, or the uh, um, of governments or perhaps uh, corporations moving towards also providing more help in in that regard. I know here, I'm here in Tel Aviv, and if I'm not mistaken, you know the government pays for um, you know IVF treatments and also for uh, even for surrogacy treatments as well, um, with with some exceptions. Uh, and I know that obviously. Uh, you know, if you're a Google or you're a Facebook and you're uh, offering incentives for people to come and join you, then then I guess uh, uh, fertility treatment uh, could be an additional thing that, that swings it for, for a potential star employee. Yeah, that's right. I mean, because this is such an important area of healthcare, such an important area of humanity, of course, you're going to see, you know, em- employers and, and government programs and ultimately insurance moving into this space. Um, you know, it is Things, some of those programs are a little bit slow moving right now in terms of our business view on this, um, you know, future families kind of building the platform to provide access and whether we actually give you a financial plan um, or we end up, you know, helping you process your insurance payments and provide coaching support. Our services are kind of in demand even as other support services grow around the ecosystem. But that's right. I mean, I, I think that we will see a lot more services and support as the problem is better understood. And can you give us a, a sense of the kind of traction that you're getting in terms of uh, customers, in terms of growth or revenues, or is it too early for that? Yeah. I mean, I think that for us, what, what we really look at is, um, is really the network growth. So our biggest focus, Future Family is a little bit of an ecosystem player. Our biggest focus is on um, bringing more and more clinic partners onto our network so that we can help more and more patients, right? So we're 
plugged into clinics across the U.S., hopefully at some point internationally, um, but in the U.S. today, very focused and bringing in new clinic partners. And that's really at this point been doubling Q over Q, where we have so many new clinics joining the network. Um, in fact, hopefully circle back with you, but I should have another big announcement coming out in the next two weeks on our, our most recent partnership. Okay. I, I think uh, you've already uh, publicly announced that you've raised something like $12 million, uh, perhaps a, a, a little more. You've got $100 million credit facilities. I'm curious to know, not just as a, you know, one of those, not as rare, but still reasonably rare, you know, female founders, but, but in a sector that perhaps, you know, male dominated VCs might not naturally get or naturally empathize with. When you go to venture capital companies, when you go to people to raise funds, um, do they get it? Was it easy to kind of get in there and explain and show them? Or once they started seeing or getting a sense of the size of this opportunity, they were sold even if they didn't quite, you know, understand or the, the difficulties or the challenges associated with, you know, going through fertility treatment? Yeah, I think I think the, the biggest, um, you know, break breakthrough for or insight from for us here is has been that it's been more than anything generational um so not so much um you know only women understanding the, the problem and solution set or vice versa but rather a generational um divide where i would say that those who are living this problem so those of us in our 20s and 30s and early 40s that whole spectrum really understand this because it's a <clears throat> it's a topic of conversation at the birthday parties that we go to and the cocktail hours and at the you know well formerly the water cooler at work etc like those who are in this de- part of this demographic shift it's an issue that's near and dear i think for those you know who we approach to like maybe you know they'd started families years ago it wasn't really something that was part of the equation um that that was what I observed the most in the market when we talked to folks, um, because again, you know, those of those of us who, if you're starting your family in your 30s now, depending where you're living, if certainly if you're in a coastal market, New York City or San Francisco, you definitely know friends and family members who are going through fertility treatment. Well, appropriately, I think we can hear your kids uh, in the background there, so uh, so that's 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 good. Yes, probably can. Uh, maybe we should bring them in later, but but I. I think what I wanted to do is to get a, a sense of what, what was the reaction when you first, you know, went through the door and you said, OK, this is my company. This is what I'm raising money for. Was it blank stares? Were, were, was there anyone who was, you know, outright against this because they just didn't get it? Uh, what can you tell me? Any other anecdotes, perhaps, that, that, and stories that you experienced? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I, I think certainly... Um, you know, folks who were like kind of distant from the market, there definitely were some sort of like, oh, well, this seems like a very kind of niche kind of solution and maybe femtech or this feels very niche. Um, I, I think there's obviously still like with any emerging category, um, you know, remember before this, I actually worked in the solar market and it, 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 there's a lot of parallels, even though they're very different in many ways where, you know, if you were in the early days and you were seeing a few kind of wealthy environmentalists in California stapling solar panels onto their roofs, you would have thought this is not a consumer market and this is not going mainstream. And there's a little bit of that sentiment too, where some, you know, some folks still are, you know, questioning how big will this market get? And yet I think if you're immersed in this um, problem, you know, that thinking about starting a family or expanding a family, um, it's much easier to see this pain point um, and how it, how quickly it can grow. So I think those, 
those are kind of some of the anecdotes definitely still hear questions around things like market size. Um, you know, I think some, maybe some of that will fall away after even just seeing the COVID. Right. I guess I just want to get from you, obviously without naming names, you know, what was the, what was the best reaction you had to when you kind of walked through the door of the VCs? What was the worst reaction you had? Um, yeah, uh, good, I guess, good bookends. I mean, the best reaction I think, um, well, has been there have been a lot of people who who really get this market right. I mean, there are now over twenty startups, and there's a lot of people looking to put money to work. And so, some definitely some of the best reactions were around you know people instantly seeing that okay, this is going fertility is going to be the next big thing um, in this space, and sort of you know obviously investing in the company. We have a really fantastic set of investors and um, around the table a really great set of board members as well. Um, so I think those are like some of the highlights. I think the worst reaction, I mean, every entrepreneur has these stories of the, the pitch not connecting and people looking sort of vaguely bored. And, and I think, as I said, people thinking it's more of a niche market. Like, I don't know if you can give me a concrete, like, you know, this is what one VC said to me and this was not what you'd hoped for. You know, the rejection of a pitch, et cetera, is it generally is sort of people saying, wow, well, I just don't see how this market possibly gets to be more than, you know, whatever, you know, a couple tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, isn't this, isn't this just a solution for a few percentage of people who, you know, are having careers and starting families and later in life, like people really pigeonholing it a little bit around a sort of solution set that's not broadly needed, as opposed to, and I think there's a lot of that, right, because Silicon Valley is such a bubble that you constantly, I mean, how do you get things like Juicero, like, I mean, you, you constantly get things where people go, oh my gosh, people would ha- need assistance, you know, paying for fertility treatment. That's how much of a bubble Silicon Valley is. Um, and so, of course, you say, you know, uh, yes, I mean, look, this is an elective treatment that starts at 25000 So I think there is certainly this component of there being a little bit of bubble impact in the Valley. And Google and Facebook do cover this. And people go, oh, well, Google and Facebook cover it. So you don't need anything else as a solution. And it's like, well, that, that is not the 99% of the population. Right. Uh, and you mentioned Solar City um, briefly. I think you also almost founded a solar energy company. So uh, what made you, uh, well, I guess we know what made you, but, uh, you know, do, do you think you made the right choice uh, not going into solar, going to fertility instead? I, well, I do sitting here. I mean, it's, it is at the end of the day, the most rewarding, um, the most rewarding job you could hope for in the sense that, you know, just you know, yesterday morning, you know, photos pop into our Slack feed from clients. They're sending their baby pictures. They're sending um, photo shoots um, that they're doing when they're during their pregnancy. Um, some of them are sending updates uh, along the way in terms of how their family building is going. So in that sense, I mean, as much as I loved being part of the clean energy revolution, there's nothing quite as touching as helping, um, you know, women and couples realize the dream of having, you know, a family of their own. Well, I've asked this question in, in various forms to, to male founders as well. So, but I'm going to ask you, so what's harder, uh, raising, raising kids uh, or, or starting a, a, a fintech, starting a company, uh, which I guess is helping other people right, to, to, to bring kids into the world? Yeah, well, what I'll say is that there, there's actually a lot of great parallels between the two. And, and in some ways, one or the other prepares you for, um, for both pathways in the sense that I think 
if you start a company, you understand in the early days, it's a very manual process, not much different from having a baby. Um, and then you sort of get into the toddler years where, you know, you're still a little bit on suicide patrol. And there's, again, a lot of caretaking, but it's starting to wobble or walk on its own feet. And then you kind of hopefully get into this later stage where there's more independence. And so I, I have found them to be very parallel processes in my own life. Okay, well, this is the question that I kind of end on to everyone that I have on the FN Tech podcast. Uh, and you obviously can't answer your children or your company. So the question is, what's the weirdest or craziest thing you've uh, ever built or done in your life? Uh, what's the weirdest or craziest thing I've done besides doing a startup with kids? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, like things that prepare you for, I guess, entrepreneurship and so forth. Um, yeah, good question. I would say that um, the kind of what pops to mind was just in terms of um, training for a startup was during my grad school years, I spent an inordinate amount of time um, climbing uh, very large walls in uh, Yosemite and other places. And um, I think that that experience, there's, a, there's also a lot to the zen of, of rock climbing that I think I've carried into this next chapter of my life where I do not find myself on large granite walls anymore, but do instead find myself scaling different heights. Um, that's probably like the chapter that I, I look back on the most. And, and for the rest of those stories, we'd have to Elliot okay. get to go over a scotch or something at a later point. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I know it's morning where you are, but, uh, you know, as they say, it's, it's after four o'clock in the afternoon somewhere in the world, including where I am right now. Sh should we say hello to, to the kids uh, uh, that, that, that are playing nearby? Um, yeah, if we can find them. I, they may be somewhere around here. Let's check in on them. But Natalie, what, what, what do you think of Mummy's company, Natalie? Is it a good fintech? Should we invest? Working, 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 working. <laughs> Well, I think that 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 I guess sums up the uh, challenges of uh, having a, of raising a family at the same time as uh, as running a company. So, uh, Claire Tompkins and Natalie Tompkins, uh, founder and CEO of Future Family, uh, really appreciate your taking the time to join me on the FNTech podcast, and, and wish you the very best of luck and happy birthday for, for Natalie. Thank you, Elliot. Pleasure to be with you. All right, take care. Talk soon. Fintech has already disintermediated, dismembered and disrupted much of what we do with our money. Listening to Future Family's co-founder, it's easy to wonder why it took so long to come to fertility treatment. As a company, FF not only benefits from demographic trends, but from lifelong brand loyalty. If your child or your very existence comes partly thanks to a fintech, won't you be more inclined to do business with them again? So thank you, Claire Tompkins, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates as well as listen to all previous episodes via the website f-in-tech.com. If you've got any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at podfintech or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.